Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Seaweed Brain. Today, we are going to be diving further into the Tower of Nero. We are going to be pushing people off of robes. We are going to be spending a lot of time with gay people. Stick around. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Seaweed Brain Podcast, spending a lot of time with gay people. <laughs> Actually, that's just like participating in the Percy Jackson family. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Welcome back to Seaweed Brain Besties. I'm Erica, joined today by my co-host, Carter. Hi, yes. And we are also joined today <laughs> by our returning special guest, Rick. What's up? Hello. As Carter said in our introduction, we have a lot to get to today, namely spending lots of time with gay people because... This is like the most Solangelo ever in a single book like upcoming in this book and specifically the section we are in today as we get to Camp Half-Blood. So we're going to spend some time talking about that and like our opinions on it coming into it as like elderly people. And we did not grow up with this ship, right? So it's very interesting because we are coming at it as people who like, I feel fiercely protective of Nico <laughs> and... maybe like hypercritical of will in some ways um so we're gonna get there we're gonna get there carter where did we leave off last time we last left off in sally jackson's household with also paul and small baby estelle we've formulated a plan that is going to involve pushing lou off a rooftop to confirm that she is still a nero loyalist who is fighting apollo and meg uh and that's all to set up us at some point going to Camp Half-Blood, regrouping, getting a team together, and then at some point later on having Apollo and Meg turn themselves in to Nero to infiltrate, you know, throw off his defenses, launch our tactical strike team to take down the tower. At some point, we're going to also have to deal with Python too, of course. But um, at this point, that's what we've got. It's the next morning. We're leaving the household. I think we already read this line. Yeah, we did. We talked about Sally Jackson, girl bossery, baking cookies, writing her second novel. And there's some more Rick forcing us to grow up and be old adult people. Because (laughs) as we talked about last week, we thought when this book came out that this was going to be the last book. And Apollo, as they are exiting the Jackson apartment, says... I suspected that the good food was a never-ending temptation here at the Jackson Blowfist home. There would always be a next sweet or savory snack that was more appealing than facing the harsh world. Oh, and then I linked, I was like, what is this? What did I link in the outline? It's Paramore's Grow Up. Um, (laughs) Because some of us have to grow up sometimes. That's the third song off of the self-titled 2013 album, for those of you who did not have your uh, (laughs) references open as we are having this discussion. When I listened to the song, I was like, this is a Meg McCaffrey theme song. I don't know if I've ever heard it. I was never like a Paramore child. I skipped I skipped an emo phase and went completely to Justin Bieber. So <laughs> That's okay. That's okay. That's okay. Some of us had it's hot not. topic phases. Some of us had Justin Bieber phases. We all ended up in the same place. We all ended uh, up broke in New York City. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, some of us have to grow up sometimes. And so, uh, uh, oh, If I have to, I'm going to leave you behind. Those are the words. Anyway, take it away, Carter. And with that, we are off. We are having a conversation about the dynamics of Nero's um, household, of his imperial 
tower. Um, specifically, we're talking about the fact that there were um, other children there. There are other demigod children who we're going to have to confront. And we're also establishing a little bit more about the specific dynamics between Lou and Meg and how Lou shielded Meg from a small subset of the worst things that happened there. Mm-hmm. But obviously Meg is still a very traumatized person. I think we talked about this earlier as well, these conversations, and specifically the like piece of information that gets dropped about how Lou helps to protect Meg from having to kill people in the household. Is it clarified if Lou is also the guardian for the other kids, or do the other kids have their own um, ethnic subgroup guardians? <laughs> I don't believe it is ever I don't clarified. Remember. Lou seems to like Meg more than she seems to like the other children. But I guess it is also true that Meg needs more help at this specific juncture of being a wanted fugitive of Nero's imperial household. Mm-hmm. I think it's ambiguous. That would make some of what comes up later in the book even, even worse. scarier yeah. if she is the guardian to all of the foster kids. I can totally see that, though. Like, her just, like, wrangling all of those children. Yeah. Child wrangler. Yeah. I would. I think I would believe it either way. We find a rooftop. We climb all the way up to it. There is an interesting bit here that I guess is here to emphasize that Apollo still doesn't really trust Lou. Apollo has to be the one to throw her off the rooftop and he is kind of having second thoughts and specifically doubts about his literal ability to do it because as we've established, Lou is gigantic and we love that for her. Apollo gets to a point where he actually seems to believe that Lou is going to harm Meg. He is actually concerned about her well-being and it is because of that that he gets this godly power-up and like hurls her off the road. He's so dropped in to the improvisation. <laughs> Fully realized. He he throws Lou off the building and she flies really far. We hear a car alarm go off and that's not supposed to happen. <laughs> it's like the sound of a cat banging into a trash can. Like, <laughs> Which I think, I, again, fun writing, delightful. I, I think it invokes our sense of perhaps like a Looney Tunes kind of relationship to violence where we're like, oh, this is oh, a good Octavian joke. Oh, Octavian Corps? Yes. Wow, yeah. That was the last time you mentioned Looney Tunes violence, Carter. <laughs> yes. Looney Tunes violence, for those of you who have not taken classes about the history of like racial representations in American media, a lot of that actually you can trace back to, say it with me, minstrelsy. And the fact that you have cartoonish acts of violence that are shown to children all the time by characters wearing these gloves is because it's a legacy of an idea that like black bodies are similarly, you know, these costumes and are connected to the way you should understand like animals and that it's a way of like training children to believe that this kind of violence is is funny and ultimately not something of great consequence or um ethical import anyway so that happens i we are a little concerned very terrifying it's terrifying in this specific situation with lou not just because apollo seems to be not totally in control of his abilities because he doesn't trust this person who is very central to the plan that we've all agreed on but also because lou has to be in like fighting shape afterwards we're not a hundred percent sure that she's alive even after this has gone down but you know probably she's strong yeah <laughs> But Apollo's feeling really bad because of Meg's relationship with Lou. Like, this is where it is affecting Apollo, where he's like, oh my god, I hope I didn't just kill Meg's, like, only slightly positive parental figure in her life besides me. Uh-oh. But we don't have too much time to process this, because we gotta, we gotta zoom. We need to get from Manhattan to Long Island. We gotta get to camp. They gotta get back to Hogwarts. Gotta get back to school. Gotta get back to Hogwarts. <laughs> where everybody, where everybody knows, knows I'm cool. cool. Yeah, okay. 
Back to witches, witches and, and wizards, wizards and, and magical, magical beasts and goblins and, and ghosts and magical, magical beasts. That is the worst Listen. rhyme song that I love. We love the Michigan that I need. <laughs> Go blue, but oh, rhyming Lord. magical beasts and magical feasts is something that should keep you up at night. That is not it's it. actually a genius. <laughs> Darren Chris is a songwriter. Giving fucking Lin Manuel Miranda right there. I'm sorry, Darren. If you hear this, go blue, go blue, Asian, <laughs> my fellow Asian king. Anyway, we have to get to Hogwarts, and the way that we're gonna do this is by summoning an old friend. Talk about the original series nostalgia. It's time for. The Chariot of Damnation. The last time we saw these girly cats was what? The Titan's Curse? We last saw them at the Sea of Monsters as we ran out of the burning gymnasium for the alternate school that Percy was attending with Tyson. And Tyson and Annabeth and Percy load up into the back of this chariot for the first time. And we get the coordinates for the island of Polyphemus who happens to have both the Golden Fleece and also Grover kidnapped. Oh my god, wow, that made me so nostalgic. Oh, I love Sea of Monsters. It's a great book. Grover in a wedding oh, dress. Like incredible Percibeth development. Incredible wow, Percibeth development. But now we're back. Wow. And you know what's really fun about this? Meg loves the Chariot of Damnation. Meg loves the Chariot of Damnation, and this works on so many levels. The reality is that Lou used to treat her and the kids to cab rides in the Chariot of Damnation as like a fun thing to do to get out of the Tower of Nero. So she has this positive memory and relationship to it. And also it's like, she's a New York City kid, so she like loves taking the taxi. That just made me feel like that was such a sweet characterization of Meg. She's like Eloise at the freaking palace uh plaza yes i also wanted to say palace (laughs) but it's plaza she's a new york city girl and also like of course meg who is like disgusting and And a weirdo and kind of a little she would love (laughs) rusty old ladies she loves these one tooth one eye (laughs) yeah or like what's another like iconically gross little girl i envision a lot of those people who are like on the cover of the children's picture book and their like hair is like not together yeah, like and messy. like maybe they're like leaned over to the side and they're holding like a bucket with things falling out of Junie it. Like, B. Jones. Junie B. Jones. Yes. <laughs> I loved Junie B. Jones. She was silly. Ramona Quimbley. Is that a Oh, reference? Ramona Quimby, age eight. Oh Absolutely. my God. Ramona Ambises. Selena Gomez's best role. So true. <laughs> We're going to read a, a short, short quotation. Wait, Meg turned and looked at me in wonder. You know the Grey Sisters? She said this as if I'd been holding out on her, as if I knew all three founding members of Bananarama and had not yet given Meg their autographs. And he says, yes, Meg, I am a god. I know people. Apollo's just a name dropper. Like, that's his whole his whole shtick. We made the Tahani Aljamil comparison earlier. I think it's it's stronger in book one, but it's, oh, yeah. it never quite fades away. Thank God. <laughs> But thank God it's faded a little bit because it was making it really hard to get through. Insufferable, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, there's a fun little tidbit, very classic dose of Raritan verse development that inside of the Chariot of Damnation, if you've never been in a cab in a major city, there are usually little TVs on the back of the driver's seat and the passenger seat that play like the news or like good morning america or like weird commercials realistic like commercials game shows. that's what a yeah. lot of, there's also little they're doing shows. that in the ubers now like yes in regular have, like, ubers. it's cr- it's crazy like the games on ubers now yeah but in the chariot of damnation they air a special late night olympus tv show with talia the muse of comedy 
classic. You can also now link your favorite magic weapon to the cab and pay via virtual drachma using something called Grey Ride. I have so many- You can use your weapon to pay? What does that mean? How does that work? Like tap to pay, but with the, the arrow weapon. of Dodona? We're like mixing our New York metaphors here a little bit. It is still a cab, but also like the cab is rideshare, but also the cab is now the metro. Oh, this is a shout out to Omni, the tapping to pay. Mm-hmm. Oh, got it. <laughs> but why is it your weapon? Because what else are they carrying? I think the weapon is supposed to be like the, yeah, the phone stand in here. Because they don't Small have thing you carry with you everywhere, I guess, because they don't have phones, yeah. And because the weapons do have an underground magical talking ring where they share drama, so they're basically like cell phones. That's like kind of the internet, right? Like the magic weapon talking realm? Yeah, forget <laughs> iris messaging. It's all about sending drama through your magical talking weapon. <laughs> Sorry, Rick, this is, a, this is a thing we established during Magnus Chase. Mm -hmm. There's such a thing called the magical underground weapons talking ring yes that is real i think we made up that title for it but that is a real thing i think it raises serious questions about iris matches now that we're having this conversation because like really people should be able to just like hold up their weapons and talk through the network but i guess that's like a commodification perhaps of this special safe space for weapons that really ought to remain separate from their work but then it seems like the gray sisters are encroaching into that anyway dimension wow Capitalism, no See, not even the Grey Sisters are immune from <laughs> the death of Western civilization. We also get a quick little throwaway joke here about how the Grey Sisters are, what is the radio appropriate way for me to say this? Like I'm a little bit fruity that the Grey Sisters were into Ganymede <laughs> and then now they're into somebody else, but then Apollo gets interrupted before he drops the new tea. <laughs> this part confused me. Like I did not enjoy this, but I was confused. There was so much going on here. It I was, was like, a lot going I, on. This is a lot of personal information yeah. about the Grey Sisters. Like, I feel like I'm a little bit invading their privacy. I think I think that is supposed to be the energy we're getting. That like the Grey Sisters are like a little bit, you know, all over the place. And this is supposed to be our everything, everywhere, yeah, I mean, all at once, um, overwhelmed. <laughs> there's also a little bit of an important drop here that their prophecy still works. Their power of prophecy, which Apollo on page 70 has some musings about why that may be. Um, because their power doesn't come from the same place that Apollo's power comes from, as in it doesn't come from Apollo um, and all the ancient sources of oracular knowledge. It comes from like the sea foam, maybe. And some other things, which is interesting and good to know. It's a little bit maybe reassuring that even if Python takes over the whole world, maybe people like the Grey Sisters and other figures within mythology will have still some control over the future and over fate. And also they drop, do they drop him any lines of prophecy in this? They do. I didn't they write them give. down. Basically unsolicited. Yeah. They basically are like, you're twisting my leg. Yeah. yeah. They're pretending that he's like, like threatening them. And it's, it's a silly little bit. I loved it. It was good. I was, yeah. I was there good. for it. I find them really funny. Wait, actually, yeah. Can that be my new answer? Instead of saying <gasps> that I'm like a demigod child Apollo, can I say like, I'm one, one of the gray, of the gray sisters? sisters? <laughs> They've been around. Which one are you? Are you anger, tempest, or wasp? <gasps> Your anger. I think I'm Tempest. <laughs> I'm Wasp. <laughs> Period. That actually works really well for I us. Like I like it. Um, okay. The lines of prophecy we get um, are as follows. Adair reveals the path that was unknown and bears destruction, lion, snake entwined, or else the princeps never be o'erthrown. And does say o'erthrown. Right. There's like a little apostrophe there instead of the V for rhythm and rhyme scheme reasons. Adair. Oop. That's gonna, Who could that be? That's going to be exciting. But at this point, we arrive at Camp Half-Blood, safe and sound on the hill. And let's take a quick break before we step into camp. 
Once the smoke cleared, I saw we had skidded to a stop on the old farm road just outside of camp. To our left loomed Half-Blood Hill, a single great pine tree rising from its summit, the golden fleece glittering from its lowest branch. Coiled around the base of the tree was Peleus, the dragon, and standing next to the dragon, casually scratching its ears, was an old frenemy of mine, Dionysus, the god of doing things to annoy Apollo. Casually scratching its ears, in case you missed that. Okay, I have so many <laughs> questions about that pronoun choice. What was going on? I was just going to say, now I can only see him as like Jason Manzoukas. Like, I, <gasps> I, I never pictured him looking like that, but it's in my head and it's just, it's stuck. And it's great. Thank you for I'm the so reminder. Excited. Yeah. That is like one of the best. One of the best. Out of all of them. It also might be referring to the dragon, I guess. Like the dragon is scratching its ears, maybe. Yeah, that's what I was. Oh, that's true. Either way. Standing next to the dragon. But it would have been. And standing next to the dragon who was uh, ca- yeah. casually scratching its ears was an old frenemy of mine. It's ambiguous. Because otherwise the, su- the subject, that's improper grammar. Who's your editor? Shrunken white would not stand for this. <laughs> anyway, uh, we're at camp. Dionysus is here. He's back. He was not here the last time we were here. Yeah, so now we have to get the dynamic between him and Apollo, which is apparently younger brother, older brother energy. Yeah, I would say that's right. Younger brother, older brother, but specifically with some edge to it because there's both I think a sense that Dionysus is supposed to be kind of disrespected by some of the gods because he's new and like was born immortal and all these things but also that they have kind of like maybe overlapping responsibilities and um perceptions in the world that Apollo is also like kind of music and um poetry and stuff and Dionysus is like partying and there's not like not an overlap and they're Mm. also both you know on the fruitier side etc um I think these things all come through in the dynamic between them (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the good news is, though, there's a lot more demigods at camp now, right? There are. It's summertime. They're back? It's summer. Yeah, it's summertime. And also, when we were last at camp, there was this question of like, oh, Nero is like amassing demigods for his army. We seem to have toned down on that. And now there's just like a specific number of foster children. And that was a little bit like, oh, of that plotline. But there's tons of, in particular, like brand new baby demigods who have just arrived and they're like wandering around super dazed like still injured from the monsters that were attacking them on their way in so once again we're thinking about you know the future yes and like what we have to lose we're thinking about the future we're having some check-ins with people who we care about i think that's i guess as good a segue as any to begin talking about oh my god nico and will oh (laughs) wow it's time let's do it page 80 Compared to the camp's Greek temples and amphitheaters, the four-story sky-blue Victorian known as the Big House looked quaint and homey. Its white trim gleamed like cake frosting. Its bronze eagle weather vane drifted lazily in the breeze. On its wraparound front porch, enjoying lemonade at the card table, sat Nico D'Angelo and Will Solis. Dad! Will shot to his feet. He ran down the steps and tackled me in a hug. That's when I lost it. I wept openly. My beautiful son, with his kind eyes, his healer's hands, his sun-warm demeanor. Somehow he inherited all of my best qualities and none of the worst. He guided me up the steps and I insisted I take his seat. He pressed a cold glass of lemonade into my hands, then started fussing over my wounded head. I'm fine, I murmured, though clearly I wasn't. His boyfriend, Nico D'Angelo, hovered at the edge of our reunion, observing, keeping to the shadows, as children of Hades tend to do. His dark hair had grown longer. He was barefoot, in tattered jeans, (laughs) and a black version of the camp standard t-shirt, with skeletal pegasus on the front above the words Cabin 13. Who made that shirt for him? Did he make it himself? Someone get this boy some shoes. Meg, Nico said, take my chair. Your leg looks bad. He scowled at Dionysus, as if the god should have arranged a golf cart for us. Yes, fine, sit. Dionysus gestured listlessly at the card table. I was attempting to teach Will and Nico the rules of Pinocchio, but they're hopeless. Ooh, Pinocchio, Meg said. I like Pinocchio. 
Dennis's narrowed his eyes as if Meg were a small dog who had suddenly begun to spout Emily Dickinson. Is that so? Wonders never cease. Nico met my gaze, his eyes poles of ink. So, is it true? Is Jason... Nico, we'll try to don't pressure him. The ice cubes shook in my glass. I couldn't make myself speak, but my expression must have told Nico everything he needed to know. Meg offered Nico her hand. He took it in both of his. He didn't look angry exactly. He looked as if he'd been hit in the gut, not just once, but so many times over the course of so many years that he was beginning to lose perspective on what it meant to be in pain. He swayed on his feet. He blinked. Then he flinched, jerking his hands away from Meg's, as if he just remembered his own touch was poison. I, he faltered. Scusatemi. <laughs> well, that cannot be the correct pronunciation <laughs> of that. That was Japanese, Carter. It's saying it. I can't, I'm not going to try to do better than that. He hurried down the steps and across the lawn, his bare feet leaving a trail of dead grass. Will shook his head. He only slips into tally when he gets really upset. The boy has had too much bad news already, Dianis has said with a tone of grudging sympathy. I wanted to ask what he meant about bad news. I wanted to apologize for bringing more trouble. I wanted to explain all the tremendous and spectacular ways I'd failed since the last time I had seen Camp Half-Blood. Instead, the lemonade glass slipped from my fingers. It shattered on the floor. I tipped sideways in my chair as Will's voice receded down a long, dark tunnel. Dad! Guys, help me! Then I spiraled into unconsciousness. Wow. Thank you, Carter. Shall we start with Nico not wearing shoes? Because that feels so right to me. <laughs> Wear his shoes. Wear his shoes. Tumblr's done, but if it were not, oh my. I shudder too. Um, wow. Let me not say anything else. I'm I'm glad we are in the timeline that we're in. <laughs> I'm sure someone has made something about that. It's interesting that he says he wa- he wanted to ask what he meant about the bad news. Like Nico's entire life thus far has not already been bad news. Like Apollo, I feel like should know from that like that poor man. Any any day of his is typically a bad day. Unfortunately. I have questions about the ensemble, like the Nico ensemble. Like, did he make the shirt himself? Did someone make it for him? If so, who? Is there like a screen printing shop at like Camp Half Blood? I feel like if anyone made it, did the Will shirt order it on Etsy? Who knows? <laughs> there has to be a screen printing shop. I feel like Raina is the guess I would like to say uh-huh. that like Raina Etsy ordered it. That would be cute. Oh my God, stop. Like when he decided he was going to spend some more time at Camp Half-Blood, she was like, this is going to help you feel more at home there. Yeah, I feel like Raina has the right mix of thoughtfulness uniform. and like genuine understanding of uh, mental illness that she might find this kind of thing to be charming <laughs> and heartwarming. Yeah, she knows like how powerful her cape was for her. So she's like, Nico, you need like a garment to fill you with power and like act as a shield for you, metaphorically. Yeah, it's not specified in the text. (laughs) We can use our imaginations. We can use our imaginations. I love how Rick does not give Nico a break. Even though he is in this relationship with Will now, he still looks like he's been punched in the gut so many times that he no longer has a perspective on pain. Yeah, he's literally (laughs) always suffering. Like that boy simply does not get a chance to be happy. Even in a relationship he's so real for that and it's almost like um <laughs> mental illness and trauma do not immediately <laughs> disappear when you um start uh, dating a blonde person it's um, true. oh my <laughs> god i have to go i'm sorry can you finish the episode without me <laughs> i'm sorry that was that was directed at um people who create the canon of ya and not erica Okay. <laughs> is this the part? No, this is the passage, but soon the passage where that calls I texted this to Carter when I read it, refers to Jason as Nico's 
best and closest friend? It's a no for me. Somehow Jason's best friends with Percy, he's best friends with Nico, and he barely ever interacts with either of these boys. Like, Jason patted him on the back one time and was like, gay is okay, and that is now Nico's best friend? Apparently. The math is not mathing. It does not make sense. It's not textual. And in fact, we know that Jason, he went to Southern California pretty quickly after, like, there's not the time even outside of the text where they could have been furthering this relationship right? The entirety of it literally was the House of Hades, and it was a disaster. Yes, it was. And oh, that God, is not a go. model of anything for anyone. Wow. Rick? Richard. Richard! <laughs> Nico and Jason are not best friends. Cancelled. End of story. Okay, now can we discuss a little bit about Will? Because I would like to... You're gonna talk about the tattoo? Okay, no. We're not talking about the sunburst tattoo on the pectoral, because I also have questions about that. William, who let you do that? Who who let you get that tattoo? Who tattooed that boy? More importantly, Richard. I feel like Richard is really trying to push Will on us in this book in a way that isn't <laughs> not effective but because i have such a more strongly developed relationship as a reader with nico i want to make sure that he is happy and like this is like the best person for him and this isn't obviously the reveal moment like we've known they've been together since uh the first book in the series but i feel like richard is like no 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 like we should be happy like we should love this and is really trying to like put the ship onto us yeah which i understand Mm -hmm. but i am suspicious of it i don't care to be spending any time with will that is not also with Nico, that is not um, with the tone of investigation. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because like we're Nico's best friends, yes. and we are suspicious <laughs> of Will. Will is someone who, like, as far as we can tell, is fine. But we are, you know, our relationship with him is entirely mediated through and contingent on our relationship with Nico. Is how I feel about it. Yeah, like, if they broke up, Will would be in the trash can. <laughs> Will would be in the trash can. We would have a list ready to go of all the reasons why he was always terrible. Yes. You know, like... <laughs> But at the same time, are There's we no, actively trying to break them up? The no. Situa- Absolutely not. No. We're not going to try and break them up. But like, we're not friends with both of them. <laughs> I don't need to hear, you quote, were Nico's here's all first. you need to know about yeah. Will Solis. He had clothes waiting for me. I don't think we did need to know that about Will Solis. I think we have enough information. I don't know. Like I, basic human decency. Or like, I, okay, I get that he's perfect. Like, you know, like the pushing of him being perfect onto me is almost making me like, <laughs> feel negatively towards him even though i don't feel negatively towards him like i've always liked will he's a nice guy yeah yeah (laughs) he's also blonde like okay it's true okay more on that as we keep as we keep going after this after we settle into camp um we have a classic nightmare sequence where apollo lays down to sleep and this nightmare takes us to Nero's palace the most important thing we learn in this section is more about Nero's specific abuse there is a little reading on page 84 here just so we can really get a sense of how terrible Nero is. This is about all the foster children. I counted 11 in all, arranged from tallest to shortest, their ages ranging from about 18 to 8. They wore purple-trimmed togas over their motley assortment of street clothes to indicate their royal status. Their expressions were a case study in the results of Nero's abusive parenting style. The youngest seemed struck with wonder, fear, and hero worship. The slightly older ones looked broken and traumatized, their eyes hollow. The adolescents showed a range of anger, resentment, and self-loathing, all bottled up and carefully not directed at Nero. The oldest teens looked like mini-Neros, cynical, hard, cruel, junior sociopaths. I had to take a beat after that paragraph. Like, wow, that is some, like, child psychology? Like, (laughs) very specific in its explanation of how 
evil parents mm-hmm. turn kids into evil adults, you know? Yeah. And that process and what that looks like. And then Apollo goes on to be like, I can't imagine Meg, you know, in that lineup of kids. It's such great imagery, though. Like, it is painting a very specific picture of that home. And it's just, it's awful. Building Nero up as a tyrant. He has New York City in a surveillance state and he has everybody like in his pockets because he writes their paychecks and he is, you know, a horrible industrialist. But also he is like turning kids into monsters. And that specifically is something that is like absolutely unforgivable Mm -hmm. and something that we should be like afraid of him for like the influence he has over young people. Mm -hmm. Which again, if we're thinking about like real life tyrants and like, you know, figures we should be afraid of and why, um, it's because they can have influence and like break children and also turn children into monsters. But as we see later in the book, we should feel as though we can also intervene and like help those kids, regardless of what state they're at. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Makes me think of Ethan Nakamura. Wow. That's a callback. Mm-hmm. Moan of silence for Ethan. Yeah, Rick was very firm in saying that it's not too late yeah. for kids. Mm-hmm. You know? yeah. Even Luke, obviously, much to our controversy, <laughs> said it's not too late. Well... With that, um, Apollo wakes up, he's hanging with his children, he's meeting some new ones, including one, fascinating, who is from Hong Kong. Apollo has a child who's from Hong Kong. What? (laughs) He does not know when he's there, he does not know what the implications of this are for the lore, for his own personal, like, is Rick trying to give us some sort of new Cold War? Like, I I don't, I think we just need to move along and note it and be like... (laughs) Wow. Um, you know, is this what westward expansion means to to people now in in 2023? Oof. Mm. Um interesting. <laughs> oh, this is where we get that line about Will Solis. Here's all you need to know. He had clothes waiting for me on his last trip into town. He'd gone shopping specifically for things that might fit me because I figured you might come back to camp eventually. Okay. And then the outfit is like a slim fitting olive green tee and like dark wash jeans. And I was like, that's a gay son. <laughs> Look at your gay son getting you like a cute little outfit that fits you perfectly for his gay dad. <sighs> wow. Beautiful. Something else we get um, as we settle into camp here is Apollo being sad about Meg spending time with other people, which I loved. The specificity of him being like, hmm, I really, Meg and I have really only talked to each other for like a really long time. And now she is like talking to another group of people and like, I'm not there. And like, I am jealous and sad and uncomfortable. That's so real. Mm -hmm. Like being protective and also being like, oh my God, is she going to forget about me? And like, yeah, you know, young people. And when you like, bond with young people and you're like do you think i'm lame like (laughs) are you gonna like decide you hate me and like find another guardian i'm cool right like i'm I'm the cool adult that you guys are friends with right yeah also meg like bonding immediately with um dionysus is really fun because again they're both like crusty and like monsters (laughs) yeah dionysus is also a a cretin i think that's the the term i would use endearingly in the case of meg um Social therapist parenthesis affectionate <laughs> close parenthesis. You want to go with this quote, Carter? Shall we read it? Yes. This is from Apollo. Uh, I wanted to tell them that they were all so young. Their lifespans were a blink of an eye compared to my four millennia. I should be wrapping them all in warm blankets and giving them cookies rather than expecting them to be heroes, slay monsters, and buy me clothes. On the other hand, Achilles hadn't even started shaving yet when he sailed off to the Trojan War. I'd watched so many young heroes 
march bravely to their deaths over the centuries. Just thinking about it made me feel older than Kronos's teething ring. Important context here is that a lot of versions of the myth involve Apollo um, killing Achilles um, or otherwise um, offering some sort of divine assistance to, um, to Paris and shooting the arrow that ends up destroying Achilles. But point taken, youth is fleeting youth is fleeting and also something that like you i don't know i feel like i i I, as an elderly person (laughs) myself i do now look at people who are like 21 and i was like damn you're doing too many things but also like when i was your age i was also doing too many things and like that's that's bad (laughs) i also think there's an undeniable maybe i shouldn't say that to me there is an undeniable perspective that rick is offering the reader in this book under the assumption that if you started reading these books when you were 12, you are not 12 anymore Mm -hmm. at the time that the Trials of Apollo was coming out. It's very possible that a 12-year-old read all these books in one year um, in 2020. But also I think Rick is writing from the perspective of like a lot of his readers are now 20 years old, 18 years old, older. And this gives us the opportunity to think back to when we first encountered these books and we were their age. Mm -hmm. And we think about Percy being 12 and it gives us that opportunity to be like, wow, Percy was that young? And we were that young when we were first reading them. Again, really inviting the reader into this yeah. cumulative experience of this book. Yeah. I also think it's like interesting that like he doesn't seem to mention in this kind of soliloquy like monologue he has how many of his own children have died and he's watched them mm. and had not been able to do anything mm-hmm. about it. I mean, I think he probably mentioned it a little bit when he first came to camp um, in the first book. But him being in the Apollo cabin, like you'd really think he would talk about like the air is still missing certain people. I feel like to make the dynamic with Lester Papadopoulos work, we really shy away from like him being a dad. Yeah. Yeah. Entirely. He's just one of the boys. He's like their weird brother. They mention it and then they like immediately, oh, wow, I don't remember that. And then that that's the extent of our reflections. Mm-hmm. Okay. As we head to the dining hall and we find Nico Drama. sitting up at the head table with Dionysus discussing in hushed tones, because of course he is, that's my boy. Like, you better be sitting at the adult table <laughs> talking in hushed tones. That's giving the same energy as us spending our breaks at school in the teacher's lounge. <laughs> I'm sure many of our listeners did that too. <laughs> I see you. I see you all. For the Cretans you are. Okay, this is where we get the entirety of the setup for the sun and the star. Wow, it's all right here, page 93. It's not your fault, Will assured me. When you got here, you just confirmed what Nico already knew. The thing is, Nico lost his sister Bianca a few years back. He spent a long time raging about that. He wanted to go into the underworld to retrieve her, which I guess is, as a son of Hades, he's really not supposed to do. Anyway, he was finally starting to come to terms with her death. And then he learned about Jason, the first person he really considered a friend. It triggered a lot of stuff for him. Nico has traveled to... <laughs> Sorry, it triggered pause. a lot of stuff for him. No. Richard? <laughs> Richard. I think his whole life is just triggering. I think just one more person dying is sad, regardless of who. Apollo is projecting his sadness over Jason's death. <laughs> Unreliable narrator. Yep. Nico has traveled to the deepest parts of the underworld, even down in Tartarus. The fact that he came through it in one piece is a miracle. With his sanity intact, I agreed. Then I looked again at Dionysus, god of madness, who seemed to be giving Nico advice. Oh, yeah, Will agreed, his face drawn with worry. They've been eating most meals together, though Nico doesn't eat much these days. Nico has been having, I guess you'd call it, 
post-traumatic stress disorder. Flashbacks. He has waking dreams. Dionysus is trying to help him make sense of it all. The worst part is the voices. A dryad slammed a plate of huevos francheros in front of me, almost making me jump out of my jeans. She smirked and walked off, looking quite pleased with herself. Voices? I asked Will. Will turned up his palms. Nico won't tell me much, just someone in Tartarus keeps calling his name. Someone needs his help. It's been all I could do to stop him from storming down into the underworld by himself. I told him, talk to Dionysus first. Figure out what's real and what's not. Then if he has to go, we'll go together. A rivulet of cold sweat trickled between my shoulder blades. I couldn't imagine Will in the underworld, a place with no sunshine, no healing, no kindness. Beautiful. I've actually never seen Frozen 2. What, what? the hell? <laughs> I'm so sorry. That's kind of astonishing. I'm just a silly girl like that. And you said you're I a know, Christian lesbian? Like lesbian. Yeah, I know. I'm sorry. I Don't get me started sorry. on how Elsa is dating her lesbian water horse. <laughs> Please. <laughs> Like a real horse? No, it's like a spirit horse. Well, it's horse. like a magical horse and like a nature spirit. It's like the primordial spirit of water, but also a horse and also a It just lesbian. takes the form of a horse with like amazing hair. <laughs> okay. And sometimes okay, okay. it's a nice horse because she not like Evan collaborates with... No. Evan Rachel Wood is her mom. Her mom? Yeah. I thought that Evan Rachel Wood was her love interest this whole time. See, No. If you listen to the last song, you were the answer you've been waiting for all of my life. I'm sorry. Come, my darling. Homeward, Homeward bound. bound. I am bound. Yeah. I thought I she was just bound. calling her lesbian lover to come home. No, the real know? lesbian lover. No, it's literally was about accepting yourself. <laughs> the real lesbian Aww. lover is the you you found along the way. I love. She's showing that. herself to her, herself. Yeah. Wow. Anyway, I'm sorry. We're going to do a Patreon <laughs> episode specifically about show yourself from Frozen 2. <laughs> that was a sneak peek. Anyway, all of this is to say that if you haven't seen Frozen 2, A, you should, and B, this is how Frozen 2 also begins with like a gay person being like, I hear something and everything is fine, but everything is not fine because I hear something <laughs> and I must leave everything I know and venture Some off. Some look for troubles, but others, but others don't. don't. There's a thousand reasons you should go about your day and ignore those whispers that you wish would go away. What a massive slay it would be if Rick said it was Nico all along. That Nico's hearing his own voice from Tartarus? I would literally jump out the window. <laughs> Come get me. Mark would totally do it. Mark would like pull in themes of Frozen 2. <laughs> what if you just cracked the code? Is Nico also going to find out that he's actually not Italian, but actually indigenous. <laughs> oh my god, he's biracial. We all know that Nico is half Asian. That's he's half Filipino and half Italian. That's what the people say. Oh my. All this to say, like, just like Elsa, you know, goes deeper and deeper and deeper to find the truth, he's gonna like descend deeper and deeper into Tartarus, and then he's going to like find himself, but also at the risk of losing himself at the same time. And his boyfriend. <sighs> yeah, maybe Will will be singing the next right thing i want the honor journey for will sans the song yeah they can't all be winners you know you also have to have the the one yeah. olaf comic relief song the b-sides yeah carter and i frequently fight about olaf 
Olaf is fucking hilarious. I think Olaf is hilarious. Summer is a great introduction. I actually like forever ruined an inter like the relationship I had to to a person in real life because I was like Olaf is like really bad, and that was like I thought Frozen Two was a complete sleigh, and it completely brought me out of it whenever Olaf would show up and distract our conversations about indigeneity with Josh. <laughs> with Dad. Some and that person was me. <laughs> Carter ruined their relationship with me. Every time Olaf goes, Samantha, I pee my pants a little bit. It's so funny. I was going to say this is a good time for us to like make any Sun in the Star predictions, but I think we just did. I think we just wrote the whole book. I think you just plotted it out like in front of our eyes. Version A, it's Bob. Version B, it's Nico by way of his mother. <gasps> Maria! Literally after he's been to the underworld so many times looking for his mom too, right? Yeah. Is she in the fields of Asphodel? confirmed when they have the flashback vision where he sees that zeus killed his mother hades makes some comments after she has died about the funeral rites that he wants done for her and that the furies rather are going to be performing these rites but he doesn't specify in that conversation where she's gonna go uh necessarily Mm -hmm. so she could totally be in the underworld like this whole time and he would have never known yeah oh my god she's in the depths of tartarus waiting for him to show up so that she can be like you are the one you've been waiting for all, all of, of your, your life. life. Yeah. <laughs> Literally the design uh, it would probably parallel as well, right? Where like we are going back through and revealing, re-experiencing trauma after re-experienced trauma until we get to the bottom and Nico's like, I'm the one I've been looking for. Especially because it's also like Nico has kind of gone through this journey at this point and like has discovered his epic powers, but still looks at himself as a monster. And still grows more powerful day by Literally, day. Literally, the parallels are okay. very striking. Elsa and Nico. Except he doesn't have a kingdom to abandon, I suppose. But he is the ghost king. He is the ghost king. That's true. Maybe he's like going to be like, Hazel, maybe you are going to be the ghost king. And I'm going to be, I don't know what the Tartarus analogy of this. Do you think Nico's just going to like live in Tartarus afterwards? And like. Yes, he's going to live in Tartarus. And like reform Tartarus and be like, Tartarus should be a good place. Yes. With like rights. He's going to do community organizing with everybody who lives down there. With uh, Damison? Damison? Yeah. yeah. Whoa. Yes. Whoa. Ding, ding, ding. Fanfic, fanfic. Someone's probably written this already. Mark! Mark has already written this! <laughs> <laughs> so true, so true. <laughs> Mark, we'll play this soundbite for them when they come on the show. <laughs> we figured out your little game. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, it's time for us to strategize about this book. Okay, yeah. So we're back at breakfast. Meg immediately flops down next to Dionysus and is like, pass the syrup. I love her. I love her so much. I want the best for her. There's more Nico on page 97 about him being super anemic. And really looking back, obviously we have the benefit of hindsight, but Rick is setting Nico up for a main character arc in this book. He is constantly just like every time Nico is on the page being like eight paragraphs about Nico's development. And Literally character. in chapter, what is this? As if we already This don't is know. chapter 10. We all know this information. We know we could recite this information in our sleep mm-hmm. unprompted. Truly. Where he literally goes through line by line for a paragraph, Apollo. And then at the, it ends with the sentence that I found really striking quote. And through it all, he'd struggled with his upbringing as a conservative Catholic Italian male from the 1930s. And finally learned to accept himself as a young gay man. I gasped a bit. What a line. I believe this is the first time he has used the word. I think that Rick has only used the word gay twice in the books. The first time when referencing Apollo creating the meme. Mm -hmm. And the second time here because Nico never actually identified with a label. I believe out of his own mouth at any point in these books previously. Because that's not how Disney plays things. Until now. And he still hasn't said it himself, but like, you know. He doesn't say he's gay with Cupid. Or does he say I had a crush on Percy? He says he spits 
I had a crush on Percy. And to Percy also, he's like, I had a crush on you, but I don't anymore. And Jason also skirts around it. Yes. Jason is like, I guess it's not weird for like a boy to like another boy. What an interesting crystallization. They use the word conservative as well in this. That's fascinating. I don't believe Rick has ever said, I am making commentary about political ideologies (laughs) and the way that they impact children and the way that some of them are not okay for children. Like, wow. Okay. Not to like, you know, give a glad award to to a person who is like (laughs) (laughs) like, doing the bare minimum. (laughs) Carter, I think you're forgetting that Rick already won the Stonewall Literature Award for young kids with Magnus Chase. Okay, that like, makes this sense. Is, it should not be groundbreaking to be like, there were cultural norms in 1930s Italy that were bad, but he hasn't said it before this. So, um. <laughs> no, he hasn't. No, this is the kind of sentence that you see a lot in like young adult literature now that's like very open about labels and like really specific and like also mentions like history and like the like perils of coming out. But this is not something we've ever gotten specifically in. Yes. The PJO series. And it means something different for us. I will say like, I wish that it was Nico was the one saying, it's never him saying these things. Nope. And it's about to be baby. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. A whole book of it. But yes, I, I wish that he was the one who had said this sentence but you know you can't get everything i think it kind of makes sense to me as a characterization that nico would not be talking about himself this much that's fair um but also to me it like really works not to be like people should not talk about their own identities because obviously they should but i think that there's something really uniquely moving (laughs) about getting this definition after knowing nico for 13 books and having literally that this as like a recontextualization and a crystallization of a person who we already know and know for all of these various reasons and experiences that we've had together the bullet point summary and be like wow we were there for all of this mm-hmm. and now look where we are learn to accept himself as a young gay man he has a boyfriend okay okay yes yeah, so we talk about the prophecy a little bit nico is like yes i do know cavern runners you're not gonna find out about them there's like some tension between nico and will in that conversation where will's like i didn't want to tell nico about the full prophecy yeah. because i don't like these people and i don't like that you're hanging out with them and nico's like excuse me He's not having it. They're my besties. Yeah, like, why are you trying to protect me? Nico doesn't like that. Again, we are 100% team Nico on this. I trust Nico. I trust his judgment. Will, why are you trying to keep this from him? I will be at brunch next week working through this. (laughs) (laughs) This shocked me. I I was gagged a little bit when when this came up. I don't know if it was Apollo, but everyone was like, where the heck is Chiron? Excellent question. Chiron is setting up Rick's next book series about gods from multiverses fighting jesus over climate change <laughs> it's literally phase and four dionysus says some joint task force he called it the world has more than one crisis happening at a time perhaps you've noticed he said he had an emergency with a cat and a severed head whatever that means to which i immediately was like the severed head is mimir right from magnus chase yes and i'm assuming the cat is from kane chronicles the cat is the goddess bast a very important figure in Egyptian mythology in her own right. And in the context of the Cain Chronicles, the um, goddess who is the sort of au pair mentor to Carter and Sadie Cain as they go about their adventures. And a queen. Bast is great fun um, in those books. But also not someone I believe we've heard from in a long time because Rick has sort of not been talking as much about those books but it's back. We're going to talk about this next episode, but there's like a gigantic mansion in Brooklyn. The Bro- it's called the Brooklyn House. The Brooklyn House, yes. They like see it. Or Rachel is like, do you all see that house? 
this is why I'm better than you. And everyone's like, what? No, what house? <gasps> oh, <laughs> that was the bro. I was like, what is this referencing? Oh my God, it's been so long since I read Red Pyramid. I actually, I never finished those books either. They're kind of fun. The amount of times li- people have DM'd me asking us to talk about Kane Chronicles on the show. Good when it goes to Netflix too. Maybe we should. Because unfortunately, one of the tropes that really still kills me and is like weird that it does because there's no like real life analog for this. But the thing of when like you are dating two people and then they end up being the same person. That's a huge spoiler. Um, But that works for me as a dramatic (laughs) device. Um, The most notable example, of course, being Cardcaptor Sakura and also Spider-Man, I guess. I don't know, whatever. Where are we going with this? This was like... One of my favorite parts of this book, though, I was like, wow, I cannot wait for what's to come because Rick does everything intentionally. The climate change joint task force. (laughs) (laughs) You know that the joint task force to address climate change on Earth and Midgard is what they're talking about. Yes. It's literally, I mean, like Marvel Phase 4 was the multiverse. It's time for Rick Phase 4. Multiverse. Multiverse. (laughs) The the multi-Riordan-verse of (laughs) Richardness. Okay. As we continue our time at Camp Half-Blood, I just continue to be thankful that Mark is here to save us all from Rick trying to write the dynamic between Will and Nico (laughs) because they're flirting. It's just, this is going to hurt some people, I know. To me, personally, the flirting on the page between Will and Nico is just not it. When Will is like, I might take you out for pizza this weekend if you're not too annoying, I was like, what? They've been dating for like more than six months now. That's not acceptable. And I don't believe, (laughs) like, I don't, I feel like this is not very realistic based on the characterizations we have Nico so far. Will is like wildly inconsistent. That's whatever. That's Will's like peripheral to me. Nico, that's a little bit unforgivable. I feel like it would take a real stretch understanding of the past versions of this character. And even then, that would be a version of events where someone surely would sit him down and be like, girl, get up. Girl, get up. Your boyfriend's corny as hell. Your boyfriend is corny as hell. And like, even if that's okay, that doesn't mean that you are going to be corny as hell. Like, you need to remember who you are. Nico, you are barefoot in tattered jeans running around this camp in a specially designed t-shirt. Remember who you are. Show yourself. Furthermore, Dionysus has been giving Nico therapy, which was not on my Ryden vs. Bingo card. Did not see that coming. This is very interesting because... You might remember that there has been a moment similar to this before, because everything in this book is a callback. In the Battle of the Labyrinth, Chris? Yes, Chris Rodriguez, who was a half-blood who had run off with the Kronos Luke army, was discovered by Clarice. Mm -hmm. He was one of the people that they sent to try and understand the labyrinth, and he, quote-unquote, went mad down there. Clarice found him when she was trying to do some work around this. She had a crush on him before. She brought him back to camp, but he's still mad. I don't think they used any other words. That's what's interesting to me about this, is that at the end of that book, Dionysus shows back up. He has a conversation with Percy about mourning and about the passage of time and the nature of you know, yielding and being a hero and all these things. And you're like, this is unusually sober and normal for Dionysus. What's going on? And it's because his son just died. But also he heals Chris. And Percy sees this and he's like gagged. And Dionysus turns to him and he's like, "Um, (laughs) madness is one of my specialties. But that is what he says about that. That language, I think is very... 2008? Starkly contrasted with what we see here, where Dionysus uses the phrase mental mm-hmm. health at least three times. He had to go to a sensitivity training. Someone else he maybe uses the term madness, but... Apollo, probably. Yeah. Very different. Very different. Dionysus instead uses the phrase mental health to describe why Nico should not be running around underground too much, because it is bad for his mental health. 
True. I just find that very interesting. There's also the implication that the Dionysus is not using divinity or magic and is instead just being like, like a therapist. And giving him advice and tools for how to to um, respond to things. He needs that. He should not magic it away. Like he needs to talk about it with someone. The amount of times we've begged for a camp half blood counselor. I mean, I guess Mr. D has been under our noses the entire time. We don't know how many kids he's silently treating, mm-hmm. and we don't know if he's effective. <laughs> I'm not convinced based on this conversation that he is doing a good job. Maybe. All the other, we only know like, you know, five people who've been to Camp Half-Blood. Um, all the other kids could be really well adjusted and they just are boring. And that's why Rick didn't write about them. You know, we only heard about the mentally ill ones on the, on the Argo <laughs> 2. Classic Mr. D malapropism refers to Lugu Selwa as Lululemon. I snorted. That was hilarious. I was like Peter Johnson. Again. The nostalgia. His ass is definitely, he knows about Lululemon. Um. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so where are we going to start? Adair reveals the path that was unknown. As we said, we're going to Brooklyn to see Rachel Elizabeth there. I could not be more excited. I yeah. didn't think of her. There's a proper noun. <laughs> I did not think of her as somebody who had that many loose ends that needed tied up in the series. But I'm glad that Rick was like, we're involving R.E.D. Because... She was never really somebody that had a lot of page time in the original series, and she is a fan-freaking-favorite. And original listeners will also remember that I used to hate her, and really, that feels like 18 lifetimes ago, because I do love this woman. Maybe it's just because I know a lot of people <laughs> from Barnard now, but love Rachel Elizabeth Dare. <laughs> Oop! Um. But before we go to Brooklyn to see R.E.D., we have one day at camp, and Rick opens the next chapter by saying, what would you do if you only had one day at Camp Half-Blood? That's profound. Apollo's answer is that the real camp is the friends we made along the way, <laughs> and he just goes on a listening tour of the camp. People are not useful. People are <laughs> behaving in ways that are kind of stereotypical, but in fun, goofy ways. I thought that this was going to go on for like the entire chapter, but he only talks to two people because there are like not a lot of Camp Half-Blood campers we know anymore. <laughs> they are either in college or dead. Oh my God. <laughs> not wrong though. Yep. I was really expecting us to get to know, what was her name? Was it Miranda Gardner more? You might Katie remember Gardner. that when, when Nico and Katie Gardner? Well, there's a Miranda and a Katie, but there's both, right? I think they're spelled like the last names are spelled like differently. Like I think one has like Gardiner and then one is Gardner. There is a daughter of Demeter who is on the little mini quest team where Nico and Will are collaborating for the first time. And I just kind of assumed based on the way that that was written that she had a lot of tea and that we would be seeing this person around a lot and beginning to know her <laughs> as like a brunch girly. And that we'll see her in the sun of the stars. Where is she? We'll see her. I mean, I have to hope. We'll see that cottage core bisexual at brunch. I'll see you at brunch, Miranda. We need hag representation, okay? <laughs> we literally do. It can't just be the Gray sisters, you know? Like we Those need- are my hags. <laughs> Literal hag representation. <laughs> <laughs> Tag yourself. Literally, that's me, though. I, I am way more the Gray Sisters than Miranda and or Katie Gardner. <laughs> we have one stop to make before we close out our time together today, and that is the Forest of Dodona. We alluded to this moment last week's episode. This is perhaps the most important moment in all of this book. It is learning about the Arrow of Dodona's backstory. I have rarely been more impressed with Rick as the moment that he tied it all together here and this silly little talking weapon character 
that I thought was just the most brilliant comic relief turns out has some real emotional depth that perfectly parallels his storyline to Apollo's storyline that once again makes Apollo question his morals and his treatment of other people and what we owe to each other and also his relationship with his own family. Turns out the Arrow of Dodona was like a laughingstock in the forest and he was cast out and he's, you know, doesn't know if he's going to return. It's like Mushu from Mulan, but if the protagonist of Mulan were also Mushu, but like larger, um, <laughs> you know, and if this were like a dramatic reveal that happened midway through act three. Which is kind of the story. I mean, that is kind of the point. Like Mulan is also somebody who doesn't fit in and is laughed at. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, d- I don't know. I feel like this is, forgive me, because obviously um, the original Disney Mulan film is a masterpiece, but this is a moment that like gagged me a little bit more. <laughs> the uh, idea of making it a reveal and having the arrow be like, I kind of thought you would understand. And Apollo being like, whoa, actually, I kind of do understand. And then literally saying, I wondered bitterly if there was anyone I hadn't neglected, hurt, or overlooked during my time as a mortal. Strike that. During my 4,000 years of existence, period. It's like, well, we yeah. we humbled this man so hard that now he is feeling bad about the way he treats objects. <laughs> the work has been done. This is a good bet. This is a good reference. This is how you tie things together and create dramatic arcs that pay off. You know, Chekhov's Arrow of Dodona, if you will, works out. <laughs> Chekhov's Arrow of Dodona is Chekhoving. And Dodoning. And Dodoning. Wow. Where does that leave us? After this, there is another poignant moment where Meg meets Apollo here in the grove of Dodona. Apollo is just so concerned because they're about to head to New York and take on Nero. And Meg is like, aren't you worried that I'm going to betray you? And he's like, what? No. And she's like, I betrayed you once right here in these woods. She didn't sound sad or ashamed about it the way she once might have. She spoke with a sort of dreamy disbelief as if trying to recall the person she'd been six months ago. That was a problem I could relate to. Change is a fragile thing. It requires time and distance. Survivors of abuse like Meg have to get away from their abusers. Going back to that toxic environment was the worst thing she could do. And former arrogant gods like me couldn't hang around other arrogant gods and expect to stay unsullied. I'm glad we took this time. I'm glad that there was a beat for roaming around the camp and reflecting and reminding ourselves of the emotional place of everyone and calling back exactly to things from earlier in this series and from earlier, earlier, like, you know, the Battle of the Labyrinth. Um, As we've said on earlier books, episodes on earlier books in the series, like we rarely spend a lot of time at Camp Half-Blood. So it's great to have these moments of downtime, like sitting in the grove, like, and just talking. Wow. But Meg says, I got this. You have to trust me. And Apollo's like, all right, together once more into the lair of the beast. Peaches. <laughs> and we're off to NYC. Well, does anyone have any final thoughts? I think that's that. <laughs> we've covered everything. Next time, we'll, we'll be checking in with Rachel. We'll be checking in with the Brooklyn house. We'll be checking in with a bunch of red cows as well. Caitlin from Percibeth Fields Fandom will be back. So get excited about that. Woo! We usually cry when she's on the show. So it'll be fun. <laughs> oh. <laughs> any last thoughts rick i really just wanted to sing nyc from oh my god me too that was my also that. reaction and yeah, i don't even I, like I that held musical. myself back 
That's awesome. You can follow us on Instagram at Seaweed Brain Podcast, on Twitter at Seaweed Brain Pod. I sometimes make TikToks. I think my username is Erica Seaweed Brain Podcast. I don't know. I keep changing it to try to find a way to market us better. <laughs> we also have a Patreon now. Our first episode is out now. Check it out. It's patreon.com slash seaweedbrain. The link is in our show notes. We will be talking about Frozen 2 at a certain date. Right now, the episode is about everything everywhere all at once. And the next episode is going to be about select episodes of Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. Give us some ratings. You can drop a question into your review. We will rapid fire answer it the next time we see it. And we will see you guys next time. Bye, y'all. Bye. Bye.